All right, let's talk some Faust Part 1. At this point, I am expecting you to have already listened to the, the video that I made up on Romanticism, so I'm going to be referring to it periodically. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go check that out first. Um, not, you know, because we will, in fact, be discussing quite a few of those major romantic themes as they appear in Faust. Um, but Faust Part 1, oh my gosh. Um, so, like, of all the things that we have to read in this class this is the one tax that is almost mandatory, like most important, most significant. Like I wouldn't be shocked if when the founders of this general humanities two class were, you know, trying to figure out how exactly they were going to structure this class and landed on the idea of following the Faust and Don Juan myths, that this was the first text that they wanted to structure the class around. Um, Faust part one is considered widely to be one of the greatest works ever produced in the modern age. Like, of all of the works we study in this class, this is probably the one that is best received. Um, and on some level I have no idea why. Like, it's a freaking mess. Um, and I'm not going to beat around the bush about that. Like, as much as some of its highest, most important moments are some of the greatest, like, most emotionally evocative moments in all of Western literature, um, it spends a lot of time dicking around. Like, a lot of time. Already in this passage, just, you know, the first quarter of the text, we are running into the dedication, the, the prologue on the stage with, like, the clown and the, and the director, which are not characters in this story, the prologue in heaven, which, again, at least is contingently related to the plot, but is still, you know, largely separated from it and kind of just retreads a lot of the story of Job. We've got all of the peasants singing in dancing and like there's a good solid four pages without faust where they're just like having a good time because it's easter morning um and it's gonna get worse like we're gonna get huge side trips to you know the the bar um and the the witch's the witch's house and we're, we're gonna get like this huge long dream sequence that it's not even clear who's dreaming towards the end like right at the climactic emotional moment in, in the book where like everything is on the line faust is going to get just whisked off for this huge like two scene long distraction which has nothing to do with the plot it's a mess like and faust part two is worse by far like this one at least has the semblance of a pretty standard plot structure there are arcs there are character developments there are you know a plot but in Faust Part 2, it's just a giant mess, like trying to unravel all the random stuff that Goethe's throwing in. It's, it's tough. Um, so, you might ask, why teach it? Why is this considered one of the greatest works of Western literature? Why is this, you know, hyped up as one of the most important projects in all of Western history? Yeah, like, it's a good question. Um, it is a bit of a head-scratcher. But I want to stress, you know, there are a couple reasons why we do, in fact, spend an entire week or two weeks or whatever on this text. Um, on the one hand, it is foundational. Everybody going forward, like everybody in the 19th century is going to talk about this text. Virtually every major writer in the 20th century is going to be familiar with it. It is that important for that you know, on that level, like just people have been teaching it over and over and over again. Um, on the other hand, it is really good when it's on. Like 
Its A game is really freaking impressive. And some of the emotional highs and lows are freaking amazing. Some of the insights it offers are these quintessentially romantic sort of perspectives and moments. Um, and it weighs in a lot. Like Faust is going to talk about religion. Faust is going to talk about science. Faust is going to talk about like the human spirit and the personal will to strive and personal accomplishment and you know good versus evil. Like all of these major, major themes that are very dear near and dear to our hearts are all going to be on display here all talked about here and all in this very elegant poetry like it's gorgeous even in translation it's gorgeous um so it's important on a historical level it's important on sort of like a psychological spiritual level it's also a major turning point like the reason why it's so important historically is because it was very much one of the first works that sort of plumbed these depths that not only, you know, had the sort of emotional resonance of The Sorrows of Young Werther, Goethe's other work, but also had this extremely broad scope, like talking about the occult, talking about mysticism, talking about God, talking about rationality, talking about scholarship, talking about peasantries, talking about, you know, all stages of life and all circumstances that one can find oneself in, all of the great trials of history as well as all the great trials of the moment, like... Faust has it all, literally. It's just a mess getting there. Like, it's frequently disorganized and disjointed and scenes won't connect to one another and sequences won't make sense in order. Like, it is a giant mess, but it's a giant mess of a lot of really impressive stuff. Um, that said, there is also one less noble reason that this text has probably been taught over and over and over again. And that's, yeah, to be perfectly blunt, like, we professors like to look smart. Shocker. Um, and as a consequence, reading and interpreting extremely obscure or obtuse texts often makes us look even smarter. Um, being able to dissect all of the imagery and the symbolism in Faust and sort of present it for our peers or for our students to appreciate and admire. You know, this text is subject to a lot of wild interpretation and that wild interpretation means that a lot of scholars can gr cut their teeth against it and, you know, make their money making quasi-wise observations about it. Um, so the fact that this is a very obscure text actually means it's likely to be disputed more which means that academics will probably find more to talk about it than something that is you know really direct and straightforward but also really good at what it does it is to be perfectly honest the natural tendency of academia to favor messy works over neat clean polished ones um, for better or worse and the great thing about faust is it is super duper messy and it is also super duper profound and good there are a lot of levels that we can look at it and evaluate it on um, now a lot of those levels we don't have the time to get into like we could absolutely teach an entire course on faust and faustian scholarship and and goethe and the whole shebang we've got you know four lectures and most of that time i will devote as i have in the past to talking about what's going on in the text, what that means, how that connects to romanticism and history and context and all that stuff. So we're not really going to be switching gears here all that much. Um, but I do want to sort of make you aware of it because it is really difficult to sort of approach this text properly without being aware of its messiness and sort of having an eye towards at least a couple of the levels of scholarship of, at stake in this messiness. Um, so with this in mind, I do want to sort of direct your attention to the messiness of its construction 
as well as the messiness of its present state. Um, if you turn in our David Luke translation of Faust Part 1 to page, I guess that's LVII, so, you know, 57 um, and 56, the synopsis of the composition of Faust Part 1, um, you'll see a giant messy graph. Um, this is because we have uncovered several of the early manuscripts and early drafts of Faust, and, and Goethe actually published it in stages. Um, like, there was... The first time that he published it, he published it as a fragment, as an unfinished thing in, a, like, collected works of Goethe that was, that was being put together in the 1780s and 90s. Um, the actual publication in, you know, 1806 of Faust Part One. Um, had significant changes in addition to like actually filling out what the fragment had not actually completed. Um, you will actually be able to track. Uh, you do not have to keep switching back and forth to this to this graph, but you can actually track track which like what the earliest stage of this particular part of the text um, was by looking in the text itself. Like you will notice on most pages. Um, on like the top right or top left corner, you'll see in a little bracket either FI or FRA or UR. Um, and those are the final version, like the first draft, the uh, fragment and the Urfaust, the earliest draft that we've uncovered um, respectively. But the fact that this is, was composed in three major stages should also give us pause. Um, and it was not like you know, first Goethe did the first part, then Goethe did the second part, then Goethe did the third part. No, it is, like, all you need to do is look at this graph and you can see that it's a giant mess. Stuff that had already been written gets relocated, like, Faust's remorse is relocated earlier and earlier and earlier in the text with every successive draft. The scene in the cathedral switches places, there's a huge missing chunk of, like, Faust ruminating in his study, which is kind of the first major scene with Faust, um, which it's weird that that would actually come last in the composition. Like Goethe wanted to do Faust, but didn't want to do, you know, one of the crucial introductory scenes. Um, it's weird. Like he, Goethe is clearly all over the place in the construction of Faust and it frequently does not make sense. And you will see like individual lines will get added or subtracted um, over the course of the development of the text, including some really major stuff um, added at the last moment in some ways. Um, so you, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go, but keep in mind, like, you can at any point in your reading sort of pin down exactly at what stage this the, the text was composed by looking up and seeing, is it F.I.? Well, then it was late in the process. Is it U.R.? Then that means that it's the Urfaust. It was very early on in the process. Is it F.R.A., the fragment? Then that was composed between the two extremes. Um, so get comfortable, like, checking on that from time to time, especially if it seems like you're reading something especially strange or weird. Um, oftentimes those were added in the later drafts. The Urfaust actually kind of tracks the story pretty well um, without quite so many diversions. Um, in some ways, it was the more polished text, I suspect. Um, but anyway, let's start by looking at some of this ancillary weirdness. Um, so before we can even get to Faust, like before Faust even comes on stage, um, we have not one, not two, but three prologues. Um, First, we have the dedication. 
where Goethe sort of dedicates the work of Faust. And as weird as this may be, the dedication basically boils down to he devotes Faust to the characters in Faust, which is weird. Um, notice, uncertain shapes, visitors from the past at whom I darkly gazed so long ago, my heart's mad fleeting visions, now at last shall I embrace you, must I let you go? Again you haunt me, come then, hold me fast, out of the mist and murk you rise, who so besiege me and with magic breath restore, stirring my soul, lost youth to me once more. Um, notice, again, this was composed over a fairly long period of time, like this whole Faust fragment final edition uh process like the first urfaust text probably dates back to the 1770s for a text that ultimately doesn't get published until 1806 so we're talking about 30 years that goethe put all this stuff together um so his dedication is to the characters who he's been wrestling with for 30 years um they have been a you know as close as friends they have accompanied him through his life for a long period of time um this is not just you know he scrawled it off submitted it shipped it good called it a day um he sees these characters as though they are worth acknowledgement worth dedication to he loves them in a sense he deeply connects to them in a sense and in some ways it shows um as messy as this text may be and as much as you'll be wondering what the fuck he's doing at any given moment um at the end of the day like it's very obvious that he is deeply invested in these characters struggles and lives and successes and failures um but we will see that once we actually get to the text itself the second prelude, the prelude on the stage, gives us a bit of an insight into the conflict in Goethe's own mind during the composition here. Um, again, this is a relatively recent development. This is not something that appeared in either of the earlier two drafts. This is final only. Um, but we have this conversation between the director, the poet, and the clown. Um, and it's significant to note that Goethe wore all these hats at one point in time in his career. Goethe had a weird biography. Like, he was, in fact, a stage actor at one point. He was a writer and a poet. Obviously, you know, he composed The Sorrows of Young Vircher. In addition, like, he became famous enough through his work that he became a politician and a statesman, as well as owning a theater and actually putting on plays, like being involved in the business of making the money. Um, Goethe has done a lot of stuff in his time by the time that he publishes Faust Part One. Um, he is one of the greats, um, just as we talked about like Moliere being the greatest artist of the, the French, the sort of foundational artist. Goethe is that for the Germans. He is widely regarded as the greatest German poet, the greatest German playwright, the greatest German literary creator, period. Like, there have been great since, for sure, but, you know, Goethe is that foundational figure, the one who made the German language what it is, the same way that Shakespeare did with English or Moliere with French. Um, notice here that he expresses this conflict between the director, the poet, and the clown in terms of what they prioritize. So the director tells us, well, here we are on German soil, my friends. Tell me, you two have, good, have stood by me in bad times and good. How shall we prosper now? My toil, indeed my pleasure, is to please the mob, and they're a tolerant public, I'll admit. 
So the director wants to please the mob. The director wants to sell tickets, in short. His job is to make money so the theater can continue to perform. Um, that means that as much as the director might want to put on shows of great artistic merit, at the end of the day, his job is to get as many butts and seats as possible. Um, and notice, there's a money question here. How shall we prosper now? Um, his job, and it is his pleasure at this point, is to please the mob so he can sell more tickets, so he can ultimately keep the theater operating and put on more shows. But notice that this is directly at odds with what the poet wants. Do not remind me of that motley throng, he says at line 59. Spare me the sight of them. Our spirits fail and fail flounder in that stream we are swept along against the unruly flood what can prevail give me the quietness where i belong the poet's place the stillness never stale the love and friendship only there our art thrives on the blessed nurture of the heart so where the director is emphasizing give me more butts and seats let's appeal to the masses let's please the mob as he puts it um the poet is directly against this. Don't remind me of the mob. Our spirit fails and flounders in that stream. Instead, give me the quietus where I belong. The poet's place, the stillness never stale. Instead, he goes on to emphasize deep in the soul an impulse there can flow as an early song still lisping and unclear, well-formed or ill, its momentary show too soon from time's wild crest will disappear. People who aspire to please the mob will disappear as soon as the mob's opinion changes. A poet who writes to the mob is not writing forever. They are writing just for a momentary pleasure. It comes and it goes. Instead, the poet wants, often unseen and darkly it must grow, reaching its ripeness after many a year. What glisters is the moment, born to be soon lost, true gold lives for posterity. The poet doesn't want to write to the mob. If he writes to the mob, it'll be over and done in a second. He wants to write for posterity, for generations to come. He wants to be immortalized. He wants to create something of great moment, of significance, of profundity, something that will transcend time itself. Something that people will watch over and over and over again for decades, even centuries, as is the case, obviously, with Goethe's Faust. Um, but against this, we have the clown, who immediately rejects this. Must we bring in posterity? Suppose posterity were all I thought about. Who'd keep the present public's boredom out? They must be entertained. It's what one owes to them. And with a lad like me performing, they're enjoying what they see. So we have the director, whose job is to please the mob, to make them happy with what they've seen, to keep them coming back and paying more money. We have the poet, who doesn't care about the mob, because the mob only likes stupid, dumb crap that goes away after a second, and then they're on to the next big thing. The poet wants to write for posterity, for history. He wants to write something big and important and profound. The clown doesn't care about profundity. He cares about entertaining the mob. Now, this is something different from the director. The director just wants to indulge the mob, keep them coming back, keep them spending money. The clown wants to entertain them. He wants to make them laugh. He wants to make them engaged. He wants to write something that they identify with. 
The clown in this case is logically the performer, the actor. They feed on that praise. They feed on the public adoration and admiration. So unlike the director who wants to just get inside their wallets, the clown wants to get inside their hearts, to sort of appeal to them directly, to make them feel what's going on on stage, and to make them entertain, to tell jokes, to, you know, perform these dramatic scenes, to make them feel what's happening there. And these three impulses, the impulse to entertain, the impulse to sell tickets, and the impulse to create something important that lasts for all time, are sort of the three drives that Goethe sees fighting with him. What he is basically writing about here is the struggle of the artist, the struggle that he felt in composing Faust Part One in the first place. And you will see all three sort of taking priority at various times. You'll see indulgence, you'll see Faust speaking to the peasantry positively and sort of encouraging them and what they believe and, you know, just telling them what they want to hear. That's the director talking. That is, let's make them happy. Let's keep them coming back. Let's sell more tickets. Um, the director later goes on to talk about how he wants there to be action. They want to use all the fancy special effects in the in the theater. And Goethe uses a lot of special effects. Like at one point the, there's a table that spits fire and there's angels and there's all these supernatural events and like stuff comes down from the sky and trapdoors and you name it, it's in here. Um, also the director can show off what the stage can do. All to and to please the crowd and keep them coming back let's have more fire let's have more explosions let's have more you know drama on the stage itself um you'll also see what the clown wants the entertainment value Goethe will tell jokes Mephistopheles will wear silly hats um all of these sort of momentary entertainments will come and go um it'll be relentlessly engaging even if it doesn't make sense in how it's being engaging and we will also see as the poet stresses and as we will tend to focus on in this class because again we're academics and we are all sort of valuing the same things the poet values we will see the profundity we will see the you know the artistic merit that is given to posterity, the reasons why this text has resonated with generations upon generations of readers, watchers, scholars, etc. Um, but keep in mind that Goethe is writing to all three of them. Um, you know, we oftentimes when you study Shakespeare, it is emphasized that Shakespeare wrote exciting, fast-paced scenes for you know the the crowd who only paid a penny to get in while also including high wit and banter um, and these important themes to sort of appeal to the aristocracy at the same time Shakespeare tried to please everyone um, Goethe's doing the same here he is writing to the peasants who don't understand what's going on and just are there to see you know fireworks and fancy stuff and excitement and violence and sex he is writing to the bourgeoisie who wants you know these eloquent turns of phrase and so on and so forth and he is writing to the aristocracy who are interested in seeing the profound movements of the spirit and this great poetic skill um all three will be in here whether they'll fit as seamlessly as we would expect from Shakespeare is another matter. Um, but let's actually turn to some plot stuff, shall we? Let's look at this prologue in heaven where we actually start to see the characters and themes teased out. And notice how it starts here with Raphael and Gabriel and Michael, the three famous archangels, praising the works of God. 
Um, notice what they sing about. So Raphael starts, The sun proclaims its old devotion in rival song with brothers' spheres, and still completes in thunderous motion the circuits of its destined years. In short, he's talking about how the sun rises, how for centuries upon centuries, the sun and all of the various planets and the stars are all moving in this carefully calculated motion. Angelic powers, he goes on, uncomprehending, are strengthened as they gaze their fill. Thy works, unfathomed and unending, retain the first day's splendor still. Raphael says, we look on in awe at the majesty of creation, at the planets and the stars and the sun and the earth, all moving around in this carefully calibrated motion. We do not understand the depth, the immensity of everything that is going on here and yet we re it retains its splendor it still is as great and wonderful as it was on the first day of creation gabriel picks this up the glorious earth he says with mind appalling swiftness upon itself rotates and with the deep nights dreadful falling its primal radiance alternates high cliffs stand deep in ocean weather wide foaming waves flood out and in and cliffs and seas run on together caught in the globe's unceasing spin so where raphael admired the sort of astronomical greatness of the world or of the universe, we have Gabriel admiring the terrestrial majesty, the earth itself, spinning around at this rapid speed, the cliffs and the movement of the, of the sea. Notice that it is a very romantic notion that we've got here, like it is the violence of the earth's movement that is so appealing to Gabriel. But notice how it is nature that they are both focusing on. All three angels are understanding and worshiping God by trying to comprehend and appreciate the creation itself. So Michael finishes, and turn by turn the tempests raging from sea to land, from land to sea, build up in passion unassuaging their chain of furious energy. The thunder strikes, its flashes faster, it spreads destruction on its way, but we, thy messengers, O master, revere thy gently circling day. Notice again that romantic emphasis on the violence of nature, the sort of unpredictability, the power, the like raging power and passion of nature is what all three of these angels primarily regard and recognize. As I talked about with Caspar David Friedrich's Monk by the Sea, it's the earth itself that the romantics understand as religion. It is nature that best personifies God in their mind. And notice how this is represented in the words of the angels themselves here. The angels themselves admire and worship God by admiring creation, by recognizing or trying to comprehend its greatness, its immensity, its power, its violence. That is God. Um, notice too that Goethe writes God in here. Um, God is a character in this section. This is like the only time we're going to see the Lord actually talk, at least not until late, late, late in Faust Part Two. Even then, it's not actually the Lord, but like representatives who speak for him. Um, notice that this is not left up to question. God is a character. Um, heaven and hell are places, as far as Goethe is concerned. As much as the Romantics tend to be fairly agnostic or even atheistic in their understanding of religion, like, it's weird um, how we will see that pan out, and we'll see Faust sort of argue against it a little bit. Notice that for the Romantics, 
God is understood through nature, but for Goethe especially, God is in fact a thing. Like, God is best understood through nature, but he is still present. Like, this is not atheism, you know, wow, the world is awesome, let us pray to the spirits of the earth, as much as that will be a thing that happens in here. They still are representatives of God. Um, notice, too, that this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Notice how it is the angels themselves who worship God through nature. God will, in this text, be very forgiving to people who don't fully understand the Christian understanding of the world. Like, back in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, whether or not you were saved or damned all came down to, did you believe in Jesus? Did you repent of your sins? Did you reach out to Jesus? And since Faustus doesn't, Faustus is damned. Here... Jesus isn't even going to show up. Like, Jesus is not important here. Typical Christian theology is not on the table. Faust and Goethe will both be looking at God through nature as the medium, not through Jesus. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Now, while Raphael and Michael and Gabriel are all talking about how awesome the, the universe is and appreciating God through these creations, Mephistopheles shows up. Um, Mephistopheles is virtually the same Mephistopheles that we ran into in Dr. Faustus. He is the demon that will be antagonizing Faust throughout this story, though we won't see that just yet. Um, for our next lecture, we will actually see some interactions there. Um, but Mephistopheles shows up in heaven. Your grace, he says, since you have called on us again to see how things are going, and since you have been quite pleased to meet me now and then, I thought I'd come and join your retinue. Forgive me, but grand words are not my trick. I cut a sorry figure here, I know, but you would not you would laugh at my high rhetoric if you'd not left off laughing long ago. So Mephistopheles is like, Yeah, I see that we're all, you know, singing praises and talking about how great the universe is. That's not exactly my jam. Um, I'm not, you know, as highfalutin as all these archangels and stuff. Instead, Mephistopheles wants to talk about the failings of human beings. The solar system I must leave unsung, he says, and to mankind's woes lend, lend my humbler tongue. The little earth god, namely man, but presented as though he were a god in his own right, still persists in his own old ways, he says, ridiculous as ever, as in his first days. Note that he's parodying what the angels are, have been talking about. Just as Raphael emphasized that the world is as splendid as it was in its first day, and the angels in chorus again retain their first day's splendor still, all creation is as good as it was on the first day, Mephistopheles stresses human beings are as ridiculous as they were in the first day. They have not advanced. They have not gotten better. Instead, he stresses he'd have improved if you'd not given him a mere glimmer of the light of heaven. He calls it reason, and it only has increased his power to be beastlier than a beast. So Mephistopheles not only emphasizes that human beings are, you know, stuck, they are as poorly off as they were on the first day of creation, but also that rationality, you know, what the Enlightenment was all hung up on, is actually making them more beastlier than a beast. It is making them worse. The little tiny glimpse of heaven they did get, the little bit of rationality that God allowed them, has made them worse, not better. And by making them worse, they are even less than the animals. Rationality has enabled human beings to be terrible to one another. Whether you see this as being through the invention of creative weaponry or through, like, 
beating down their own impulses. There's a lot that you could interpret this as, but Mephistopheles stresses rationality makes human beings worse. Now, the setup ultimately devolves into something very similar to the story of Job in the Bible. In the story, Job is tempted by the devil. The devil goes to heaven, says, hey God, I'm here to mess things up. And God's like, hey, have you seen my servant Job? Notice that the same thing happens here. Mephistopheles is talking about human beings and how lousy they are. God asks if he's just here to complain. And finally, the Lord says, do you know Faust? The doctor, do you mean my servant? The Lord specifies. Faust serves God, but as he will say in a moment, he serves in confusion. Now, Mephistopheles is excited about this. Ah, he serves you well indeed. He scorns earth's fair and drinks celestial mead. Poor fool, his ferment drives him far. He half knows his own madness, I'll be bound. He'd pillage heaven for its brightest star and earth for every last delight that's to be found. Not all that's near nor all that's far can satisfy a heart so restless and profound. He perceives Faust as being restless, as being greedy for all of the secrets of the universe. He'd pillage heaven for its brightest star and earth for every last delight that's to be found. Faust is irrepressibly greedy in that sense. He is unsatisfiable. Um, and Mephistopheles sees this as a characteristic in keeping with his own character. It is bad for him to be unsatisfied. Faust's defining characteristic is that nothing satisfies him, and thus that makes him easy prey for demons offering these deceptive temptations. But notice the Lord responds, He serves me, but still serves in confusion. I will soon lead him into clarity. A gardener knows one day this young green tree will blossom and bear fruit in rich profusion. Now Mephistopheles challenges him. God says he serves but in confusion I will soon lead him to clarity. And we should read this as prophecy. It is God who says this after all. Um, God is saying that the story, the, the jury is out. Faust will be saved. Despite all the crazy reasons that we will see along the way, Faust is eventually going to be led into clarity. He serves God, admittedly in confusion, soon he will see how he serves God. But Mephistopheles turns it into a wager. Just like we see with Job in the Bible, Satan, you know, God says, here is Job, Job is my greatest servant, he is eternally faithful to me and satan's like yeah i bet i can tempt him out of serving you if you just give me you know like the opportunity to mess with him a little bit and god's like okay here's the deal you can take all of job's stuff you can take his family you can take his household all of his land all of his property just don't mess with him here the bargain looks different rather than faust being the perfect servant god admits he serves but in confusion he serves but he doesn't know that he serves um but he will. The day will come that his service will be realized and he will know how he serves and he will do it deliberately. But Mephistopheles still brings up the challenge. If I may be his guide, you'll lose him yet. I'll subtly lead him my way if you'll let me do so. Shall we have a bet? So the whole story of Faust Part 1 starts with this wager. Mephistopheles bets that he can turn Faust away from God, even though he is somehow serving God in confusion at this point. 
God responds, he lives on earth, and while he is alive, you have my leave for the attempt. So as long as he's alive, I'll take your bet. You can go and tempt him however you want. I am betting that he will remain mine through all of this. But he adds, man errs till he has ceased to strive. Which is striking. He is saying here that until Faust stops striving, until human beings stop striving, they will constantly be making mistakes. So it seems to suggest here, God seems to suggest that human beings like labor in their foolishness, in their confusion, in their wrongness, their error, until they are dead. And thus death is the only way that they can be saved from this suffering. And yet, after Mephistopheles leaves, after Mephistopheles takes off and, you know, is really excited about the wager and is convinced he's going to win, here at about line 340, God goes on to clarify, man is too apt to sink into mere satisfaction. A total standstill is his constant wish. Therefore, your company, busily devilish, serves well to stimulate him into action. Now, God's plan is a bit more subtle than this. It's true that Faust's defining characteristic is his striving. He is constantly wanting more. He will never be satisfied. Now, initially, it seems like this is a bad thing. Anyone who strives will make mistakes, will err. God stresses this. And it would thus seem that Mephistopheles, by finding someone who will always be striving, is he's making a sure bet for himself. Faust is guaranteed to screw up because he is so unsatisfiable. But God insists instead that man is too apt to sink into satisfaction. A total standstill is his constant wish. The error comes not from the striving. The error comes from the striving to be satisfied. In fact, since Faust is unsatisfiable, since striving is what he does by nature, he will always be in God's camp. And in fact, by sending Mephistopheles to like stoke that fire, God is ensuring that Faust will follow God's will. That through his errors and through his striving, he will still ultimately serve God, confused or otherwise. Faust would be more endangered, would be less of a servant to God if instead he gave up, if he sought an end to his striving, if he seeks a standstill. Um, So by sending Mephistopheles, he is further spurring Faust on, making him strive more, and that actually makes him more of a servant. Now again, this should sound a lot like what we talked about with Romanticism. Again, Romanticism is all about suffering for its own sake. Not necessarily for some purpose, not necessarily for some sensible reason or for some cause, but to strive. To strive is what man is meant to do, what our lot is supposed to be. Um, And you can see that echoed here. But now that we are already running very short on time, let's quickly go over Faust's discussion in his study 
um, in the night scene, scene four. Um, here we should see a very familiar speech. This is ex almost exactly the same setup and almost exactly the same speech that we saw from Marlowe's Dr. Faustus at the beginning of Dr. Faustus. You know, back then he was saying, I've read all of logic and I've read all of medicine and I've read all of law and I've read all of theology and none of it is worth anything and it's all garbage and I hate it. Notice how Goethe changes this speech, what he emphasizes instead. Note that it starts much the same way. Faust is sitting at his desk and he says, well, that's philosophy I've read and law and medicine and I fear theology too from A to Z. The same four subjects that Faust has talked about. Now, keep in mind, Goethe has not actually read Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. In all likelihood, it was not at all used for his inspiration here. Instead, he is working directly from the Faust book, which again, Marlowe was uh, using a lot as well. So it makes sense that they're using a lot of the same images, a lot of the same scenes. Um, but the comparison, again, is fairly striking. Faust has read all of the things, all four of the subjects that Fa Faust has talked about that, um, that were probably in both the Faust book and in Marlowe's version. And he says, they were hard studies all that have cost me dear, and so I sit, poor silly man, no wiser now than when I began. Unlike Dr. Faustus, Unlike Marlowe's version of Faust, who was so confident in all of his learning that he believed that he had, you know, successfully overcome all of these studies and there was nothing more for them to teach him and therefore the only thing worth learning was magic, here Faust is emphasizing not his accomplishment, but instead how worthless all of these subjects are. I am... Hard studies all that have cost me dear, and so I sit, poor silly man, no wiser now than when I began. They call me professor and doctor, forsooth, for misleading many an innocent youth. These last ten years now, I suppose, pulling them to and fro by the nose. And I see that all our search for knowledge is vain. And this burns my heart with bitter pain. Where Marlowe's Dr. Faustus was proud of his accomplishments, where he wanted to investigate the mysteries of magic because it was the only scholarship that he had not yet conquered, this Faust is humble, and in fact humbled by his learning. He has learned all there is to know, and yet he is no closer to knowing anything than ever before. He is no wiser than when he began. All of his education, all of his, you know, professorial teaching has been nonsense. He has been misleading many an innocent youth. He has been damaging them with his emphasis on academic scholarship. Notice that this too is thoroughly romantic. It is absolutely a reaction against all of that enlightenment thinking that we can just read enough books, we'll perfect ourselves. Instead, Faust is saying, I've read all these books and I'm dumber, if anything. All of this learning, all of this intelligence, all of this scholarship has just served to make me worse. And now I am misleading all of these young people by forcing them to read these books as well. I am doing damage as a professor, as a scholar. And so he wants to search for magic. Instead, he wants to plumb the depths of the world, real knowledge, as he is putting it. Not this fake crap, this cheap knockoff academic pursuit that ultimately redounds to nothing. He's, he, he takes his responsibilities very seriously. Unlike Dr. Faustus, who sort of blew off everything that he was hoping to accomplish as soon as he got his superpowers, this Dr. Faustus is very concerned with his responsibility. 
he is overwhelmed by his by what he expects of himself what his students expect from him and he realizes how inadequate he is to fulfilling that goal how little his studies have actually meant to this point how much damage he is doing by speaking about things he doesn't really understand so he seeks wisdom not because you know it's the only thing left he wants power he wants wealth or whatever he seeks it so he can actually live up to what he expects of himself he is not living up to his own standard this is the only way he sees to do it and notice too how frustrated he is with his situation um, not only is he upset about, you know, teaching people badly and, and the, the learned fools, the masters and pastors, the scribes from the schools, like how badly they have all been teaching him and how poorly his education has gone, how insufficient it has been. He's also su suffering from the life of the scholar itself. Like if you look around line 400, he said, God, how these walls still cramp my soul, this cursed, stifling prison hole where even heaven's dear light must pass dimly through panes of painted glass, hemmed in by books to left and right, which worms have gnawed, which dust layers choke, and round them all to ceiling height, this paper stained by candle smoke, these glasses, boxes, instruments, all stuffed and cluttered anyhow, ancestral junk. Look at it now, your world, this world your brain invents. And can you still ask why your heart is pent and pining in your breast, why you obscurely ache and smart, robbed of all energy and zest? For here you sit, surrounded not by living nature, not as when God made us, but by reek and rot and moldering bones of beasts and men. Faust craves communion with nature. He craves it through this magical interaction, but he also craves it just on a basic level. He wants to get out of his stupid, crappy, cramped little room with all of its books and its dust and its smoke and its awfulness. And he wants to go outside and he wants to live out there the way that God intended. Faust and Goethe is portraying this scholarly life as a perversion, as a disgusting perversion of everything that god intended for human beings being locked up with books only destroys the soul it doesn't enervate it now you can see this also in the way that faust and wagner interact wagner is faust's sort of teaching assistant his famulus um, and wagner is entirely enamored with learning he wants to read all the books he thinks he's doing great things by by studying this stuff and faust frequently rebukes him chides him for this says no this is not what we are for this corrupts the spirit it does not enervate it faust sees a mortal like death in his life as a scholar it's stuck amongst the books instead of actually living his life the way it's meant to he sees the way out through magic, through communion with the spirits of the world. So he summons the earth spirit. He brings up the book and sees the sign of the macrocosm and he summons the spirit and the spirit finally shows up and says, who is calling me? And Faust is afraid. He turns away. Ah, you are too terrible. The spirit says, you have drawn me to you with mighty power, sucked at my sphere for many an hour. And now, and Faust says, alas, this sight's unbearable. Faust aspires to a communion with nature. He wants this perfect understanding of the world. He wants real, actual knowledge instead of this fake, cheap academic stuff. But when he gets a glimpse of it, when he sees the earth spirit, it's too much for him. And the spirit even emphasizes this. 
In life like a flood, in deeds like a storm, I surge to and fro, up and down I flow, birth in the grave, an eternal wave, turning, returning, a life ever burning, at times whirring loom I work and play, God's living garment I weave and display. Notice how this is similar to the way that the angels were talking about the universe when they were worshiping God. The spirit of earth is a spirit of motion, of violence, of urgency, of doing stuff. And Faust says, O oh, busy spirit, from end to end of the world you roam, how close you are to me. I strive too, Faust says. I am also in tumult. I am also violently. I have these emotions and these surges, and I feel these things, and I want to do something with them. And the spirit says, You match the spirit you can comprehend. I am not he. And it vanishes. Faust feels this disconnect. He feels like he needs to do something more than just live in this hole and study these books and teach these students badly. He feels this need to get out and do something else, to commune with nature, to understand nature in this more profound, more divine, supernatural way. And yet when the earth spirit talks to him, it's too much for him. He can't bear the sight of it. He tries to identify with it. We are the same, he says. And the spirit says, no, I am not that spirit. And it vanishes, cutting Faust off from his only source of hope. This devastates Faust. Faust felt this horrible inadequacy, this horrible disconnection between what was expected of him and what he can actually do. He reached out to the spirit to fix that, and the spirit shuts him down. Faust can't even bear the sight of it. So he has this conversation with Wagner in which he vents his frustration and explains that Wagner doesn't know what he's talking about and everything that Wagner is studying, all this scholarly nonsense is just that. Nonsense, it's worthless. Don't pay any attention to it. Why do you care? And at the end of this, Faust ultimately decides to commit suicide. Right here at the very beginning of the text, Faust is so distraught by his disconnection from the world, from the spirit, that he ultimately chooses to end his life. So he says, I, God's own image, ah, how close it shone the mirror of eternal verity. This is about line 615. I fed upon its light and clarity within myself, all mortal limits gone, and with presumption too extreme of free, super angelic strength, divine creative life, thought even now to stream through nature's veins, what sudden shame was mine. A voice of thunder dashed me from that dream. I was so close, and I am God's image, he stresses. This is something he'll come back to fairly frequently. Remember that God also, like when Mephistopheles was describing humans, he referred to them as earth gods. Humans are gods, for Goethe here. In the romantic image, they are bigger than they can even understand. They are more important than they understand. They are divine, and they do not appreciate their own divinity. And yet, he is still too far from nature, too far from the earth spirit. Not close to you, he says, not like you. This I dare no longer claim to be. I had the power to summon you, but could not hold you there. I felt in that ecstatic hour so small, and yet so great. And then you hurled me back so cruelly into the changeful common state of men. What must I do now? Who shall counsel me? What is Faust supposed to do at this point? He is both mortal and divine. He is both great and he is small. He is both urgently wanting to commune with the spirit and yet too weak to actually handle the knowledge it possesses. 
His despair ultimately comes to a peak right around line 652. I am not like a god, he says. Too deeply now I feel this truth. I am a worm, stuck in the dust, burrowing and feeding where at last I must be crushed and buried under some ham rambler's heel. Is this not dust, filling a hundred shelves on these high walls that hem me in? These thousand useless toys that thrust themselves at me in this moth-mumbled rubbish bin. It's all garbage, he stresses. Everything in my life is garbage. I am a worm burrowing the dust. I thought I was divine, and I want to be divine, and I know that on some level I am divine, but I can't get out of this hole. I can't be what I am. He'll stress this later in the, the discussion outdoors, outside the town wall. He'll stress that he has these two souls. This is around line 1110. He says, only one of our needs is known to you. Criticizing Wagner again for only appreciating this highfalutin intellectual life. You must not learn the other. Oh, beware. In me, he says, there are two souls, alas, and their division tears my life in two. One loves the world. It clutches her. It binds itself to her, clinging with furious lust. Faust has acknowledged throughout this entire scene that he is in love with the peasant life. He wants to live a life that is simple and straightforward, a life of gratifying pleasures, of, you know, having sex with women and, and like, tilling the soil and doing hard work and just doing what one enjoys, feeling pleasure. Like, that's one part of his, that's one soul that he experiences. But the other, he says, longs to soar beyond the dust into the realm of high ancestral minds. Are there no spirits moving on the earth, ruling the region between earth and sky? Come down then to me from your golden mists on high into new many-colored many life. Oh, take me there. He recognizes he's split. On the one hand, he is a worm burrowing the dirt, and yet there's something good about that wormness. That peasant life, that simplicity, that straightforwardness, that doing what one pleases, what pleases one. To just throw away one's cares and one's concerns, throw away even one's morality in some cases, and just enjoy what life has to offer. But on the other hand, there's this high academic pursuit, this pointing at a world that Faust knows is there, something divine, something meaningful, something more profound, something eternal. And Faust wants that. Faust knows that that's a part of him too. He can't give up either one. This is who he is, and this is why he strives. This is why he cannot be satisfied. Because any time that he goes too far into the pursuits of academia, of knowledge and intelligence, on the one hand, it's not good enough. Like, it's still way too short of the divine. On the other hand, when he does petition divine spirits, like the earth spirit, it immediately shuts him down. He is cut off from that because of his humanity. On the other hand, he wants to live that simple life. He wants to give up all this academic pursuit and just, you know, till the soil and get a wife and make a life for himself, have kids, you know, just give up on all of this ridiculous ambition that is always frustrated anyway. But he can't do that either. To the spirit, he is too much worm. To the worm, he is too much spirit. He has to find some balance, some middle route, some something else and yet he can't so he decides that he's going to take his own life round set line 695 he says um quintessence of all deadly and refined elixirs come and serve your master as you can i see you and am healed as with a balm i seize you and my striving soul grows calm and borne upon my spirit's ebbing tide little by little drifting out to sea i tread on its bright mirror far and wide as new dawn breaks new shores are beckoning me 
He looks at the poison and he says, that's what I want. That's the only thing that can satisfy me now. Death. I cannot live as the split person caught between the inadequacy of the divinity and also this higher than earthiness. I cannot be just a worm. That's not who I am. That There's another part to me. It's, I'm bigger than that. I am a god, although I am an earth god. I am human. I am one part divine and one part clay and dust. One part animal, one part rationality, one part divinity. So he says, better to end it then. It's the only thing that's left. And he gets ready, he pours the poison into the cup, he puts the cup to his lips and he's interrupted. Interrupted by a chorus of angels, it says in the text. It's unclear whether they are actually angels, there's a lot of disagreement. At any rate, he hears the singing, and it's Easter Sunday. It is the dawn of Easter morning, and he hears the angels singing, Christ is risen from the dead. Hail to all mortal men from sin's insidious bane, from their inherited bondage set free again. And I was maybe a little too fast to emphasize that Christ is not in this text. He is. He's right here. Faust is saved from his suicide by the songs of Easter, by the religious uh, representation, this, uh, this celebration of the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. And Faust too is, to some degree, redeemed. At least stalled. He remembers when this did mean something to him. When he his soul was moved. At first he's a little bit struck, and then he's a little bit annoyed, but then he remembers his childhood. Those hymns would herald youthful games we played to celebrate the spring. It's not Jesus that moves him. It's the recollection. It's the remembrance of Easter as a holiday. Easter as something he celebrated as a child. The religiosity of it doesn't appeal to Faust. That's, again, that highfalutin academic nonsense he's trying to get rid of. But on the other hand, he remembers when he was a boy, when he was a child, when this did mean something to him, when it surged in his soul and the emotional outpouring was something important. That's what he wants to get back to. That's something worth having. He's not just a worm. He's a happy worm. Or he was a worm that used to be happy in his wormness. And so he puts the cup away, and instead goes for a walk. Enter all of the peasants and all of the peasants talking to each other and so on and so forth. Um, I'm already way over time, so I'm not going to continue anymore. Uh, we might come back to some of this. Um, keep in mind how this connects to the romantic ideology, the romantic downplaying of religious truth, and instead emphasizing God as a force of nature. Um, the romantic downplaying of intellectualism and scholarship and all that, of all those enlightenment values, and instead stressing the virtues of the passions, of striving. Um, and keep in mind that bet, that wager between God and Mephistopheles, um, this promise that Mephistopheles is going to torment Faust or tempt him, keep him busy, and that somehow this is playing into God's hands. Um, we will see that again in the lectures to come.